they're decolonizing it, decolonizing. So they're taking out an entire swipe of history that happened. Captain Cook's replica of his boat is gone. And we're not allowed to see that because somehow we're ashamed of it. Maybe we should never be ashamed. It's history. Learn from it. Let's go. Welcome to Citizen. We've got a special guest today, Jim Shockey. Uh, you, I'm sure, if you don't know the name, you've definitely seen him around, um, especially if you're in Canada. But, you know, Uncharted is pretty popular. Tell me about uh, some of the stuff you got going on right now so our audience can press the pause button and go look you up. <laughs> well, let's see. My wife passed away 10 days ago, so they're going to see a lot of that. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. Nine years. The um, There's a... My novel that I've been working on since I was 10 years old is uh, release date in about a week. So the book tour starts. Our museum, <clears throat> our handyman museum here in Vancouver Island, you know, will hit 30,000 visitors for pretty quick this week and uh, for the last year. And I'm trying to find a dog walker for my dog. So there, there's that's what I've got going on in my life. What kind of dog is it? It's a uh, rescue dog from, well, basically from a bison ranch up in northern BC. So it's the mother was 100% Caucasian shepherd, a big giant mm-hmm. shed bear of a dog, and the father was Catahoula leopard dog. Oh wow, that's a that's a mix. How big is it? <laughs> I weighed her. I took her into the vets when she was one year and one day old here last month and uh she weighed 107 and a half pounds <laughs> all right so well she's still she's still got to fill in she'll be she's not going to be a ballerina yeah uh certainly that's another year of growth um so <clears throat> we've got some we've got some canadian listeners but for the um for the audience uh you were born in saskatchewan tell me about what it's like there because i've i've heard things like saskatchewan's the texas of canada it's it's uh more more it would be more like the high arctic of alaska okay it's 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 cold flat prairie land short grass prairie uh you know sioux first nations cree in the north uh and and uh good you know good family values uh if you're from Saskatchewan, you know, work ethic. For my opening territories in the Yukon, I've got about 7.5 million acres, uh, contiguous acres that there's not a single road or not a house other than our cabins in it. And if we're looking for guides, Saskatchewan men and women are the ones we, you know, we really appreciate if, if we can get our hands on them. They're good, good work ethic. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, I don't know much about that. Uh that area except for what i've heard um now you've lived a pretty interesting life um a swimmer in water polo i got a buddy that was a water polo uh at uh, university of texas austin back in the day that's uh it looks so exhausting i don't know that i would be able to do it to be honest i mean you're like in constant motion for a very long time yeah the the water polo players were voted best bodies you know, for the men on the men's side uh, in the Olympics for, I think, at least two or three Olympics. I think they used uh, Schroeder. Uh, his body was the model for mm. the 
1984 Los Angeles Olympics, the, the big nudes in front of the stadium, they, they picked a water polo body. It, it's every single muscle in your body you're using. So you, you not only have to have the cardio like a swimmer, mm-hmm. but you've also got to have uh, you using your muscles. I mean, it's it's a strong, powerful sport. It's also, you know, akin to hockey mm-hmm. in some ways, uh, just because it's 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 physical and, mm-hmm. and the the, the int- intimidation is a big part of water polo. It's, it's a great, I loved it. I was an all-American swimmer as well, but mm-hmm. water polo, that was fun. I, I uh, played at the World Aquatic Championships in Berlin in 78 and Ecuador in, in 1982, but we boycotted the 80 Olympics. In 84, Los Angeles, I didn't want to centralize with the team and train. I was getting married, so. Sure. It's, but it, yeah, it's a great sport, not for everybody. Yeah, well, I mean, how, how did you get into that instead of hockey or you know any of the other sports? Uh, what, what was it about swimming that drew you in? Uh, you know, my mom didn't want me losing my teeth like my dad and all my <laughs> cousins and all my uncles. So she threw me in a swimming pool and figured it, she was getting double duty. It was making me tired and keeping me clean. Okay. So, so I... You know, I, I was a all-American swimmer, as I said, and and then switched over to water polo. My it would be you, you guys would call that your junior year of mm. college, and uh, and started playing for Canada for the national team. I played your American team many many times, uh, all over the world. Um, yeah, that's uh, that. Your mom sounds like a smart lady, because <laughs> uh, yeah, there's a. Uh... Uh, it, to, to be a dentist in hockey was probably a good job, I would imagine. Or I'm sorry, dentist in Canada, rather. Hey, yeah, I don't think that too many of them bothered replacing their teeth. It was kind of a badge of honor when I grew up. Mm. So, yeah, I don't know that the dentist did any better yeah, either. That's the fair point, yeah. Um, and then at some point after, uh, you know, what, what happened when you got out of college? Did you did you immediately get into the outdoor stuff? I mean, I assume that was part of your upbringing as well, based on where you're from. Yeah, I mean, I grew up in a trailer park, so if my dad didn't get a moose every year, we didn't eat meat. Uh, I couldn't go buy a cow. I didn't even know you could buy a cow. So so we ate macaroni if dad didn't get a moose. So it, definitely the field-to-table lifestyle was, was part of my upbringing, and as it was for many people back in those days. Um, but but I, you know, for me, the, there's always been a spiritual relationship with the outdoors. I didn't get into it professionally until after I had established my, you know, enough money that I could do it at a level I wanted to. Mm-hmm. So I, I had went into art, uh, yeah, antiques, you know, ethnocentric art forms and had three stores in Vancouver, one on Vancouver Island. Um, then Ralph Lauren bought most of my inventory out. And uh, that's when I said, okay, it's time to make the leap to become a professional in the, in the industry that I love, the outdoor industry. Mm, that's interesting. Um, so what, what's, I'm not, I'm sorry, I'm not familiar. I, I know what the word ethnocentric means, but when you say ethnocentric art, what do you mean by that exactly? There's a lot of uh, what, you, what you guys call First Nationers up there. So what, what, what was it exactly you were doing? Yeah, no, yeah, it's not Native American or, or First Nations. Mm. It's um, any ethnicity, any ethnic group that had a vernacular that they used and a traditional form of art that they followed that's ethnocentric art so so masks for instance mm. if you're going to use first nations african masks uh, you you guys have um really i mean it's not a 
an ethnic group, but uh, you have the Amish that made certain types of furniture, the Pennsylvania mm -hmm. Deutsch, you know, they made a certain style. Uh, you also have the Hutterites that made a style, which we have mm -hmm. in Canada as well. Yeah. So Dukabor, Mennonite, Hutterite, Ukrainian, any anything that they made that followed a traditional artistic form is ethnocentric, as opposed to idiosyncratic, which is uh, an individual being an artist. Sure. You know, Andy Warhol. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, what what made you decide to get into that? Is that is that what you studied in university? Art, art history, something like that, or, or was it you just have? Oh no, my, my sister has a master's in art history, and she's uh, she's uh, American studies or teaches down south. But uh, you know, I, again, my novel, uh, Call Me Hunter. It, it, that's I believe you're born with an innate ability. Some people are with um, to to recognize beauty, and and so I I think it's just something that's inherent. You 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 feel it. You feel beauty, and and you know not not everybody has it. Some people have it in in uh, on steroids. Yeah, it is. Uh, I guess. Um, you know, I, it's it's funny you say that because I can if I look at art, I can tell if it's good or bad, but I can't tell you why. You know what I mean? And I think a lot of people are like that. Like you can, um, and and it's, uh, you know, I guess if you if you think about coloring and the lines to some degree, it's it's objective, but it's it's it is highly subjective as well. But I think that's the wrong way to look at it. Art's telling a story, right? So you you're trying to read the story is the way I've always approached it. But I, like, I, I can't do, I can barely sign my name legibly. I have no artistic talent in that regard at all, but I do enjoy it. You know, I, I wonder from your perspective, like when, when you look at, when you look at art, whatever it ha whatever form it happens to come in, what is it that you're getting out of that? Well, at my museum, I'm sitting in our edit suite in our hand of man museum of natural history, cultural arts and conservation. And so when I talk about art, when I look at art, the spirit of the person that made that work of art, whatever it is, and whether they made it for ceremonial purposes or religious, uh, whether they made it just out of love or, or whether it was just a calling that they had to create this art, their spirit is in that piece. Mm. And what you're picking up when you see it, that there's good and bad, is more than likely... Uh, an instinct for recognizing truth and when you recognize the the truth of a, a piece of art if it was truly made with the spirit of that person incorporating incorporated into that art that's good art yeah that's that's you know the person that's the best they had it's not michelangelo necessarily sure. but it's but it it, it could just be as, as simple as a, a walking stick that was a folk art walking stick and and the person's life is in that stick. That's maybe all that's left of them in this planet. And so when you see that art, if it's older, your contemporary art um, doesn't do a whole bunch for me personally mm. because, you know, there, there's so much marketing involved. And, and so sure. it's hard to <clears throat> hard to pick out the chaff from what's yeah. actually authentic. Yeah, I don't, I don't think AI is ever going to be able to replicate something like what you're talking about, right? Like the, the grooves in the bottom of a walking stick to tell the story of where that person traveled. You can't, AI is never going to be able to do that. That's why I'm not terribly concerned about AI when it comes to the arts, because it'll always, like, as you said, the wheat and chaff will always separate. Yeah, sure. I mean, they'll, they'll make great velvet paintings. You know, it'll probably be the best velvet paintings ever, mm -hmm. but it's never going to be, it's never going to be great art because 
how can it be when there's no soul? Sure. If, if that's missing from a work of art, then yeah. it's uh, then it's it's not a work yeah. of art. One of it's, the re- one, one of the remarkable things about some of the older classic paintings um, is when they do these, um, you know, like radio scans of them and stuff, and you can see that there was something not necessarily a different painting under it, but the process by which it was painted. Like the the uh, there, there are some pretty famous works where you could see that a different general structure was laid down on the canvas prior and then you know the 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 painter came back and and changed things here and there that's like you know to your point that 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 to me is what interests me about art like that process the story of the person you know that's actually doing it because who gives if it's just a painting on the wall who gives a shit it's might be it's it's aesthetic it's fun to look at i guess but there's no depth yeah, I mean, again, read my novel, Call Me Hunter. There's there's a fair bit in there about the art forging world, mm. um, you know, including the Ghent altarpiece. Uh, the uh, missing Predella was the, uh, the character in the book. Icarus at that point uh, recognizes exactly what you're talking about, that the, the underlying base was real. That had the spirit of the artist in it, but uh, not not the piece that the person was passing off is real it wasn't the rest of it was overpainted so so again it's it's uh yeah it's call me hunter read the book it's all about it's about exactly what you're talking yeah, about. yeah i like that stuff i mean you know even something as as simple if you want to call it simple as like the stone tools that our ancestors use there's a couple of uh hunting leases i go to um in west texas where you can you uh you'll find things like certainly spearheads and arrowheads and things like that, uh, but also knives that were used to sharpen things. Uh, and then you'll find little holes in the ground, right, where uh, little holes in rocks in the ground where they were using them to basically grind up uh, wheat into, into flour and stuff. I mean, it's that kind of stuff is really interesting. And, and <clears throat> when I got out of high school, I'm not particularly religious, but I went to seminary because I felt like studying uh, – religion was the best way to study history at the time. But I think, uh, you know, things like geology and and what you're talking about would probably have been a pretty nice parallel. I probably could have added some of that in there, to be honest, Uh, you know, because from my perspective, I wanted to understand how human beings had historically tried to understand their own existence in the universe. You know what I mean? And I felt like religion and philosophy were probably the best ways to do that. But there was a missing component that I didn't really understand until... I got out into the real world and started seeing things that people actually crafted. You know what I mean? Because it's one thing. A belief system is one thing, but then how you interpret and put that into action practically in your own life is a whole other thing. Yeah, well, I'm sitting here in our Hand of Man Museum. I've traveled all over the world. I've found Mongolian iron points from Genghis Khan's time, is probably from his army. I found the, you know, the matata that you're talking about, the holes in the ground mm-hmm. or the holes in the rocks that they with a mortise and pestle for grinding the grain. You know, I'm sitting right here within, in this museum, 17,000 square feet. There's probably 150,000 stone projectile points, wow. you know, that are napped and out of flint. And, and, and I mean, I, I spend more time around the world looking at the ground than I do uh, looking around, which by the way, I, I'm surprised you're, you're a hunter. I, with a, at a hunting lease. Are you actually hunting when you're there or you're? Uh, yeah. Is it? Yeah, yeah. Oh, good. 
Yeah. So you leave the field, you live the field to table lifestyle. Oh yeah, yeah. I try to. I mean, I buy so um, about. I would say eighty percent of my meat comes from um, various farms around the area that I where people I know or a buddy of mine knows that he's friends with them. But I, I know the farms, and he delivers yeah. the meat to my house and goes in the deep freezer, and then I try to stack the other part with stuff that I I don't really eat stuff out of bags or boxes if I can help it, you know. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's eat from the table, not from mm-hmm. the the store shelf. You'll be a lot better, a lot healthier. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's pretty uh, it's interesting. One of my uh, one of my employees has been staying with me for a couple of months, um, <clears throat> and he's eating real food for the first time in his life. And it's uh, you know I, I, you can tell that it's that even his wife was like, "Hey, you look you look better. What happened? What are you doing?" It's like oh, I'm just yeah. eating real food. You know, it's it's it kind of sucks that it's that simple, and we still can't fucking figure it out. To be honest, <laughs> especially in America, you know, 38 percent of Americans are either diabetic or in pre diabetes right now. The the richest country in the history of the world, and we're just a bunch of fat dummies, you know. <laughs> but I mean, there, there's probably some people are smart. They just have terrible eating habits, and and they've never been exposed to anything. They've been marketed, so mm-hmm. they don't have the ability to to learn. No one's teaching it. You know, the, follow the money. You know, there's way more money in in marketing whatever frosted flakes mm-hmm. than there is in teaching people to, to grow a garden and, and uh, eat healthy. I mean, it's, it, there's no money in that. Yeah. So yeah, it, it, it's, uh, you know, we're, we're a economic driven society, especially here in North America and obesity is, is the result of it. I mean, yeah. it's, it's uh, there's the real pandemic right there. You said yeah. it. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's Those numbers are insane. It's like a plurality at this point, not a majority yet, but we're going there. We're, we're getting close. Yeah, some areas it's a plurality. Mm. It depends on where you're where you're driving through. When when you when you're finding a um, fast food restaurants four on each corner, you, you you know it's it's coming. Yeah. Even you know, and it's uh, not not everywhere. I mean, there's there's places and there's people that are, you know, guys like Cam Haynes are are really, you know, promulgating this field to table lifestyle, getting out there, be healthy. You know, your body is your temple, so don't fill it full of garbage. You know, and you only get one life. If you think you can, you know, redo it in the next life, you can't. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's it. people have to have the desire, though. And- sure. Well, in the information, I mean, it's what, what Cam does, what uh, Stephen Ella does, um, a couple other guys. I mean, even Rogan, to some degree, is, is popularized a lot of this stuff. You know, it's really important because for a number of reasons, you know, diet – and health as a result of diet is a big deal. And it's something I talk about on this show and my other shows quite a bit because it's, that's low hanging fruit, man. You get to choose, like, there's a lot of stuff in life you don't get to choose, but you get to choose everything that goes in your body. You know what I mean? No, nobody can, they can try to force you, but nobody can literally force you unless it's violently um, to do something like that. And we've, again, your, your point is right. I mean, it's just bad habits. Habits are, bad habits are easy to make and hard to break. And we've lost the connection in our lives between effort and outcome. You know what I mean? Like it isn't like you said. You grew up in a trailer park, so if your dad doesn't shoot a moose, you guys don't eat meat for a while. People don't experience that anymore. And you know, I, maybe it's hard to to teach somebody who can just walk to a shelf and pick something up that 
that's not the right idea, you know, because a lot of the, the vast majority of human life up until the industrial revolution was primarily focused on making life easier. Right. But we, there was a crit, there was a critical mass of making life easier at some point where it was a diminishing return. And I would say it's probably somewhere in the 1940s when food preservatives started to become popular, things like high fructose corn syrup, BHA, BHT, things like that. Um, but we've got no connection between effort and outcome anymore. If you tell somebody, you know, that they have to go outside and do something to get a certain outcome, they're like, oh, that's, that's not fair. Like, what do you mean fair? What does that mean? What does it mean for some to be fair in nature? You know what I mean? I, I, it's bewildering to me, but you grew up that lifestyle. And I think there aren't many people left in North America who grew up in that lifestyle. Well, you know, I'm older than you, so you're 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 probably right from what I'm saying. But I, I you know, I don't know that it's. I don't think the preservatives. I think that's a, that's a uh, indicator. The it's urbanization that's that's caused it. And again, that speaks to your point about let's make things easier. Well, it's easier if we all live together in one one big bunch. But mm. as soon as you urbanize, which we've done for, I mean, really since since the 40s 30s you know that 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 process is what causes us to lose touch with with your um, you know outcome and the work that it takes for a certain outcome so they say you know we need to preserve those and and to be fair there's eight billion of us in this world and and uh, you know we we can't all live on out in the rural areas that we couldn't survive with those kind of numbers so, so urbanization, I think, was a big factor in this, and why we've lost touch with, uh, you know, you 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 plow the land, you sow the land, you you weed it, and you harvest it, and then you eat it for the winter. I mean, that, there's what we did for, uh, you know, depending on your faith, uh, thousands of years or tens of thousands of years if you're a scientist. So, so, you know, this last decade has just seen an extreme acceleration in that process of, like you say, comfort. And, uh, I, you know, I, I, you can't blame anybody. It, it just is what it is. But I, the, unfortunately, it's it's built on an upside-down pyramid. Mm. You know, that's not a foundation. It's not sustainable. And, and, you know, build a pyramid this way, it doesn't take much to tip that sucker over. So, you know, then then we'll be back to, you know, rural living again. And, and you know, we're adaptive. We'll figure it out as humans. Mm. But but uh, right now, living in a city, I mean, that's that's um, yeah, it's ticking. Yeah. It's what what time are you going to have to leave that and and get back to the land? It's going to happen. Yeah. It has to happen. Yeah, you. It's it's certainly going to have to happen at some point. There are some programs that I've worked with here in the states. Um, Hunters for the Hungry is one of them, where you know people who are. <clears throat> uh, shooting animals maybe for sport but they send them to processing facilities and the processing facility finds you know needy families and gives them the meat um but that's the that is not a scalable kind of situation to your point about urbanization and things like that and we do have i don't know about canada but in the united states in major cities we have really bad food desert problems which is you know i'm not sure what the specific definition is but essentially it means that a person doesn't have uh, ready access in a grocery store to high quality fruits, vegetables, and meats, and instead have uh, better access to cheaper fast food. Bullshit, right? I mean, that's 
that's kind of how it goes here. This episode is brought to you by ghostbed.com forward slash drink it bros. Ghostbed. It's the best bed in the world. It's the most comfortable sheets, pillows, the whole thing. I've got them all, man. And, you know, they wanted to extend their best possible offer to drink it bros. They've been with us for a very long time. So this is the email they sent us. We want drink it bros to get the best offer. So I updated the code for 50% site wide. That's five zero percent. Site-wide, use the code DRINKINBROS, Drinking Bros with no G, for 50% off site-wide. Everything that you buy on this site is going to be 50% off. Again, they get the best pillows, sheets, mattresses. They get the mattress protector. Uh, if, you're, if you're sloppy and spill things and you don't want to jack up your mattress, they have pretty much everything you need. They've got weighted blankets now. They've got the adjustable base, which we really like. I've got one in my home. So go to ghostbed.com forward slash drink it bros. Use the code drink it bros for 50% off site wide. And don't forget about their page go plan. If you're with approved credit, you're going to be able to pay this thing off over the course of three to five years for 25 to 35 bucks a month. It's nothing. Go to ghostbed.com forward slash drink it bros today and use the code drink it bros for 50% off. This episode is also brought to you by Black Rifle Coffee. Dot com the best coffee in the world as a matter of fact they won both the gold and bronze medal at the golden bean awards this year for their exclusive coffee club entries in the elite category so the best coffee on earth literally was circus bear by black rifle one of their ecs so i recommend that you go sign up for the black rifle coffee club use the code citizen you're going to get those points off and uh you know you get all the benefits from being in the coffee club you get the free shipping you get access to all the partner deals uh, uh you get access to the exclusive coffee club you get access to any new products that come out before anybody else does you know it's a very large club that they have over there and the coffees are premium every single one of them is good uh you, you're going to get experience for you you can do just the plain coffee club and if you want your two bags of, of uh, espresso or your two bags of silence or smooth or whatever it is you drink you can get those two bags or one bag or whatever you want every month or and or rather you can use the ecs the exclusive coffee club and get access to some of the most premium coffees on the planet and kind of learn what it is that you like you know what i mean so then you can order those premium coffees from black rifle as well so and we all know they got the best branding the best merch and their buddies you know we're all friends here uh, we love Black Rifle. So go to BlackRifleCoffee.com, sign up for the coffee club, or buy something. Do whatever you want. Um, use the code CITIZEN. You're going to get those points off. This episode is brought to you by FirstForm.com forward slash CITIZEN. Free shipping on all orders over $75 when you use the link. And you're not going to spend less than $75. Bucks. I mean, they get the best products in the world, especially the OptiGreens. You know me. I don't eat vegetables um, because they're fucking pointless. So... I supplement with OptiGreens 50 from First Form. It is precisely formulated green superfood powder meant for overall immune system support and digestive health. It's really good, aside from just getting the daily greens into your body that you need. And make sure, by the way, you're taking this with MCT because you have to take anything like this with MCT. 80% of your immune system is located in your gut and your digestive tract, right? So healthy digestion is essential for overall health and wellness, not to mention that most of your serotonin, I think 96% of your serotonin or 94% is made in your gut as well. So you're going to be in a better mood. You're going to feel better physically, and you're going to feel better mentally if you are taking these greens. OptiGreen 50 has 50 chosen ingredients, uh, effectively dosed, 
It's not necessarily how many ingredients there are though, but it's a, it's about the right amount of each taste and texture. No, like no other product in the market. It's not gritty. It doesn't have a weird flavor. It's got sweet berry flavors. Actually, uh, 100% of the greens are all grown and manufactured inside the United States and they are bioavailable. Now they've got other products as well. They've got the micro factor, which you see behind me on every show. Uh, and I take them every day, you know, you got essential fatty acids, CoQ10, you get all the stuff you need in one little packet for your daily vitamin pack. And you mix that, you, you make yourself uh, uh, OptiGreens 50 shake and you, and you take those pills with it and you're gonna improve your life precipitously. You're gonna feel better, you're gonna look better, so on and so forth. So go to firstform.com, that's one S-T-P-H-O-R-M.com forward slash citizen, use the code, you're gonna get free shipping on all orders over 50 bucks. Do you have any thoughts on how, without blowing up our entire system and returning to the land, it's even possible to satisfy the, the dietary needs in urban areas with, with quali actual quality food, obviously? Yeah, I mean, if, if you pack, you know, 100,000 chickens in, into an egg factory, a chicken growing factory, you know, and, and you you can't. It's not possible to have all those chickens free range. Mm. So so, you know, do I have any suggestions? Yeah, I mean, population. You know, control the population, and and but it's not going to happen with urbanization. So so it's it's. Yeah, like I say, I I don't think that there's any solution. There there may be short term fixes on it, and and. It's all wonderful. It's a you know a nice talking points, but it's not going to happen. It's not possible. There's too many people, and you can't you know send every, you can't let a hundred thousand chickens from that factory go out onto the land to eat grasshoppers and fresh grass and the the things that make you know wholesome chickens and chicken eggs. You know the dark orange yolks that that comes from that comes from them being free range mm. and and uh if you're going to pack the chickens into that factory you're going to get what you get so so you know I, I i don't know maybe i'm a fatalist in this but uh but there's a reason there's a food desert in those places mm. because there's too many people living in those spots and you can't you cannot provide for them like someone that lives out in a rural area that has their own garden and the, their own chicken coop and goes and gathers eggs every day and, and butchers the chickens at the end of the year and, you know, lets two or three of them have chicks. I mean, it just, it's just not, it's not realistic to think that there's a solution to that problem uh, to let everybody live a, a, a rural lifestyle, mm -hmm. but still live in the city. Sure. Can't, can't be done. Uh, what do you think about food? Uh, I'm sorry, permaforce as uh, in, in urban areas. Are you, are you familiar with this? No, I'm not. So permaforest, I don't, are you familiar with the permaforest, generally speaking? I'm from Canada. I'm, I'm familiar with permafrost. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, I, I complained about the heat in Texas, but people don't die from heat as nearly as much as they die from cold, so I have nothing to really complain about. But um, a permaforest is, you know, this is reductive, but essentially you have a hedgerow of different types of berries in a, in a uh, th that is outlining let's say one acre of property um, and then you have a specific set of trees 
and then plants planted inside of it. And it, it is a, uh, it's a forest that requires no attending to because of the, the, the design where the leaves and fruit fall off trees, refertilize soil, blah, blah, blah. Right. It's, it, it's, um, I, I know somebody actually in Northeast Texas, which is shitty farmland, who's operating uh, like a three-acre one pretty successfully, um, which is interesting because if you can do it there, I feel like you can probably do it most places. But I don't <clears> – <throat> again, something like that, there's no money in it. You know, it, it's like it, it's a community that's going to come and do that, and um, so you're probably not going to read about it. You're not going to hear about it on the news for sure because, you know, every word they speak on the news – has been paid for by someone. Um, and I don't think communities are going to start taking out ads in the news anytime soon. No, well, bad news sells for $2 and good news sells for $1. Mm-hmm. So what do you think is going to get and make it into the press? And, and, and I, I mean, permaforest, I think that's a cute name. You know, I think it's, I think it's a, a, a sweet idea. And, and, uh, you know, when, when, um, we all live back in Eden again. It'll it'll probably work, but I mean, we, what's what's stopping your, the permafrost, the berries? Okay, well, you know, what about the insects that eat them? Mm. How are you going to control that? You know, the reality is the ecosystem you're creating is is not a real ecosystem. It's it's a false ecosystem, and unless you throw in additives like insecticides and pesticides, herbicides. You're, the little garden is never going to produce enough to, mm. or the permaforest is never going to produce enough to sustain how many people for the amount of land. You know, I, I mean, I, I think it's, I think it's cute. It's a cute idea. Mm. Like I, I, at least, it's, at least people are doing something. Sure. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's, but I mean, I mean, you know, trial and error, right? I mean, it's, uh, he, he's, it, it's, it's working well for him, you know, and in theory, it's, um, in theory, it'll produce after three years of growth. It'll produce uh, enough food per acre, per acre, thirty thirty people's worth of fruits and vegetables per year. Basically, is the uh, the general calculation. But that's still like I don't know what a typical acre of farmland produces. I don't know in relation to like if if let's say you have a rotational um, corn, sorghum, soy, whatever the fuck. I don't know what people grow uh, down here. That's pretty much what people grow down here. But um, if you had a rotational acre like that, can it still do 30 or would it be way more? Like, I don't know how efficient it is, but it is, this, this is a solution for you and your small community, but it's certainly not a solution or potentially it's a solution for that, but it's not a solution for like mass hunger or anything like that. You know what I mean? It's, I, I, I know it, it does sound fatalist, but I do, I think you're right. I don't think this is, uh, I don't think good food is sustainable like that. You know what I mean? It just doesn't seem likely. Well, 30 people on one acre, I, I would, I would give 26 of them high, high odds of dying of starvation. And, and that's one acre will produce enough for one family in, in realistic terms. And, and no one's going to use a bunch of, one acre land for sorghum and mm. to plant wheat to to grind it. I mean, it's just not going to happen. Who, who? Thirty people. Who's going to do the labor? I mean, you're going to thirty people have to be working full time to do that. I, I lived with my wife Louise for four years. My goal was to become 
100% self-efficient, self-sufficient. And th this is back in uh, 80, 88 through 92. And in the end, it was coming down to I was going to have to uh, you know, grow wheat to, to grind it, to, to make flour. And I just said, no, it's the, the amount of work that it takes. It's a full-time job for one person. And we had about an acre garden, uh, orchard, vineyard. You know, this two weeks ago, I, I uh, picked 617 pounds of apples. Uh, I've so far picked 300 and over 50 pounds of grapes. You know, I've harvested all our plums. The um, pears are, you know, great pear crop this year as well. But that one acre garden would sustain our family, you know, as long as we had chickens as well. And as long as I hunted and I fished, you know, that was the only way to do it. And, and when you add in the hunting and the fishing, well, you're going to have to travel somewhere. Now we have deer on our land, but, you know, you're allowed one, you know, wildlife conservation laws say you're allowed one well that's not enough to sustain a family mm. so so i i think the you know i think it's great marketing who's ever coming up with the idea i think it's great and, and i think it's wonderful because at least it's positive moving people in a direction that is is um you know better than where we've been headed for all these years and and again it's de-urbanization you want a one acre of land go Try and find it downtown New York City, yeah, yeah. downtown Los Angeles. Yeah. You know, it's not there. Right. But there's eight million people around you, living in where there's no one acres, so they're going to have to deurbanize if you want to have that working. I, I think it's nice. It's cute. Um, it's not realistic. No, in, no. In I mean, not not to solve all the problems we have certainly, but I think it. Uh, you know, I think it would be a good part of the de-urbanization process. And I, you know, it, it, it occurred, we've, we've had these conversations on the show before people think they need money. Um, but in reality, what they need is what money can buy for them. Right. I mean, you don't, you don't, money's not uh, a magical wand that you can wave and, and, and it makes all your problems go away. It represents your ability to, to get more of the things that you need, whatever they happen to be. If you can, you know, build, and this is a tough pill for a lot of people to swallow because they're so, they're so wrapped up in the modern culture and shit. They think that, uh, well, I got to have the new pair of shoes. I got to have this, I got to have that, whatever it is. Um, and we've just completely, I, in, in my opinion, we've lost our connection to our food, to nature, to what really matters in life. Uh, and, and life has become performative. It's, it's, it's like, the ultimate iteration of keeping up with the Joneses at this point in, in Western uh, civilization. And there's, I, I, you know, you would think people, we've all read about this stuff <clears throat> in, in history, and there's a pretty stark lesson about this, this type of behavior, this performative behavior, um, where we're all staring at the mirror at ourselves all the time. I don't know if Folks have read the story of Narcissus. That's where the word comes from, right? This asshole stares into a reflection, uh, to a, stares into a pool of water, his own reflection, until he turns into flowers. You know what I mean? There's a lot more depth to the story. You should read it for yourself. But, I mean, it's it's like we've had people t warning us against these types of behaviors for thousands of years now. And we still fall prey to them. I mean, I, I, I get it to some degree. Life is tough. Things go by fast. You're trying to make your 
you know, you're trying to make things better for your kids maybe, but we never stopped to think about what better really meant. You know what I mean? We gave them more, we gave them safer maybe, but what was it better? Cause it doesn't seem like the, the results are any better to be honest. Yeah. I mean, I, w the difference between needs and wants has, has been blurred. Mm. And, and so people think they need this or need that, but, but they don't, they just want this or want that. Uh, when it comes down to it, needs are, are are fairly primal. You need food, you need water, you need shelter, <clears throat> you need clothing, you need some way to protect yourself from the other people that are trying to get what same thing that you need. So, so I, you know, the the base needs are are yeah, we've totally lost touch with that, and we're mixing up a lot of times uh, discomfort with with a survival situation we we try and avoid discomfort we we also try and avoid self-determination you know self-reliance where we we want to legislate all of that out of existence every possible thing that could go wrong we want to legislate it out of existence well like i say hundred thousand chickens in a in a in a big factory producing eggs, you better mitigate all the problems. You know, the pathogens have to be dealt with. We get, we can't afford to get sick because one gets sick, the whole works gets sick because it's the pyramid. It's upside down. Mm. We're, we're top heavy and all that. And, and yeah, I, I'm sure we've lost, we've lost touch with it. Um, I think it's why so many people feel emptiness inside them. It, you know, they, you know, narcissistic personality disorder is, is I think, uh, you know, that's a re result of of this constant desire for to avoid discomfort you know you know histrionic personality disorder it's the same thing mm. the world's ending the world's ending where you know we we've we've lost i mean 100 we, you know, we're saying what the problem is and and we can talk to we're blue in the face about what the problem is but who's coming up with a solution you know th this is Therein lies the person that comes up with that deserves, you know, actually deserves a Nobel mm. Prize. Yeah. You know, find the solution to this. You know, we can, like I say, talk talk till we're blue in the face. But you know, there's eight billion of us. So I, I don't know. What do you What do you do? Yeah, Some, it's a someone... good question. It's a really good question. I mean, you know, I think it helps that people like you, Cam, John Dudley. Um, you know, all the others we've mentioned so far, at least show an example of what it looks like to do these things. You know, Uncharted was wildly successful. It's probably one of the more successful outdoor uh, uh, series of all time. The series of, uh, which is one in a series of other shows you've done. I think that helps. I mean, one of the problems people have is they don't, <clears throat> they don't know what to do. You know, people, people, uh, unfortunately, have this uh, someone's got to do something attitude, even when it's about their own lives sometimes. Like, oh, somebody's got to do something about this. Well, you better get up and fucking do something, dude, because nobody's coming to save you. You know what I mean? But it is nice, I think, because of the fact, because of that fact that people, that one of the primary barriers to entry to this stuff is people just don't know where to start or what to do. It is good that you have shows like yours that have been on, that were on for, you know, a, a long time. I think you were, you you were on for what, 15 years maybe i don't remember exactly i've watched your shows yeah. before yeah over 20 years now oh, over 20 jesus i mean that's a that's a lot of content showing people hey this isn't like you don't have to be able to split the atom to do this stuff 
This is what our ancestors did this before they even knew what an atom was. You know what I mean? It's you can get out there and do it and it's going to improve your life dramatically if you do this stuff. Yeah, the the I think part of what you're talking about is people don't know what to dream nowadays. Mm-hmm. And and also <clears throat> there's 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 a lack of desire. You know, uh, if I think it was um was it Samuel Butler said that there's no limit to desire, but desires need, and and we people don't have the need to 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 require the desire, you know. And again, Willa Cather said, if you don't, if you you know, desire is the magical element in creation, mm. and if you could if you could measure desire, you could predict achievement. Well, if, if you know, we talk about people not, you know, they don't know how to entry, don't know how to start, They're, they. But the truth is, they don't have the desire. It's it's really simple. It's really really simple. You walk away from whatever you're doing, and you go to a place where you can do what makes you whole, makes you fulfilled, makes you self reliant. You, you know, this culturally perceived needs keep us. You know, you, like you say, chasing the Joneses. Well, we need two cars. We need a bigger TV. We have to go to this grand opening. If we don't attend this ballet where you know we're nobody this charity event uh yeah those are just those are just wants and, yeah. and people without the desire to leave that behind to leave come embrace discomfort embrace it you know who, who wants to leave the nice warm house to go out and sit on a freezing cold deer stand well or down in texas a super hot deer stand you know, when they could be watching the football game on TV and and swigging beers. Sure. I mean that's that's easy and human nature says, well let's let's do that and let's always choose the course of at least resistance, which is that. Who wants to work hard? Who who wants to, like I say, feel a discomfort? So so I I, I just think what we have in our society is a lack of desire, and and whatever catalyst it's going to take. To, to instill desire in people, it's not there at this point. You know, we, we're not at that tipping point where people, you know, you saw a little bit of it with COVID when people were locked in their, you know, 22nd floor suite in, in an apartment building in downtown, whatever, name a city, and they couldn't go out. They couldn't do anything. You know, suddenly you saw people, you know, rural land prices climbing through the roof as, as people we're starting to flee the cities like a sinking ship. And so, so the, you know, you, you're going to see it, it'll happen. It's just the catalyst isn't there yet to, to cause that, you know, what they're, they're, they're not, there is no epiphany for them because they don't, uh, they don't need it. They don't have the desire. They're, they're comfortable where they are at this point. Yeah. So who knows what that'll, what the catalyst will be, but it'll come. I mean, it, nature does that. It'll come. That's that's right. I mean, at some point, this will all return to nature, um, and we'll go. I mean, you know, life is like fashion; it's cyclical. Everything and every and every facet of civilization is cyclical. I think, um, and you've captured quite a bit of it. I think there's, you know, we we look back to the past to to out of interest, I guess. But I think the the best reason to look back is to learn lessons. Um, and you tell me about the Hand of Man Museum that you've, you've mentioned it a couple of times now, but it's a it's a pretty massive spot and you've got a lot of stuff there. I mean, it's 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 a it's an impressive collection. I haven't been myself, but I've seen 
uh, media on it before. It's it's a pretty sweet little situation there. Yeah, it's it's an old school, seventeen thousand square feet on on one level. So all the classrooms. Uh, <clears throat> I, I envisioned this museum when I was ten years old. I started collecting for it. Um, you know, seashells, pretty rocks, insects, things that were free. As I said, we didn't we didn't have a lot of money, and I, I'd borrow fishing lures from my dad's tackle box. I mean, all those are in here. My grandfather's tackle box, those are the good ones. And I, and I devoted my life to putting this museum together, to living a life that would allow this museum to, to become a reality. So it was a dream that, uh, a goal, more like a dream than uh, that I set, that I knew would be half a century. It would take a lifetime. So that's this museum is a result of that. Uh, all the places I traveled, People assumed it was for the hunting. It wasn't. Uh, that was a tiny part of it. It was to to a experience life and to share the cultures in those places, the the cultural art and artifacts of those places with people that don't necessarily get to go to those places. Mm-hmm. So, so this museum is, um, you know. It, it, it's the Hand of Man Museum of Natural History, Cultural Arts, and Conservation. So there's an education component as well. And I, the goal for me is if people come in a little closed-minded, now some that come in, you know, they're just ideologically opposed to everything that, that I would stand for. Um, and, and you'll never reach those people. But but many people just don't know. It's whatever they read in the popular press recently. So Bad news, as we said, sells for two dollars. One mm. good news sells for one dollar. So they're getting fed a bunch of, you know, fluff. You know, it's and it's and it's bad fluff. So, but they're still interested in learning. They're still in, interested in the truth. They just don't get a chance to see it with mainstream media. So when they come in, if they have their minds a little bit closed, my hope is with this museum when they leave. They'll have they'll have found some tolerance, and it it speaks again to the number of people in this world. There's eight billion of us. We cannot hold our ideologies as being right and someone else's as being wrong. Right and wrong, we all know what is right and wrong. Every single one of us knows. Every single one of us. But often, what we are are thinking is right and wrong is just a cultural perspective, a social perspective, you know, who, what our friends talk about, what they say. So this museum is meant to open people's minds and and show them the past as well. Like you said, it's important to preserve the past so that we can learn from it. You know, the, this, you know, the, this period we're going through in our civilization, this has been done before. You know, we'll look back on this, humans will look back on this as the Dark Ages, again, the time of Inquisition. And, and there's, you know, I'm not going to bring up the other periods in, in our human history where, you know, you know, she's a witch, she's a witch, burner. Mm. You know, I'm not a witch. You know, they turn me into this. And that's Monty Python, some of the wisest words ever said. And, and we're doing it again. You know, you disagree with my ideology, so I hate you, and we will never, the twain shall meet. So, so this museum is meant to show that humans. I mean, the library in here, first edition books going back to 1508, uh, Plinius, Sir Francis Bacon, 1679. These are all first edition books, Cuvier, Cobb, 
the natural historians and the Lewis and Clark's first edition, you know, the, the Alexander Mackenzie, the first one to go across North America. They, all these books are here, all the explorers. And, and you know, it's, it's interesting when you, I'm getting a little bit off topic, when mm -hmm. you said you um, studied for seminary, mm -hmm. that, you know, back in the day, 500 years ago, we were all Renaissance people. You know, we, we were all theologians, which is what you're looking for. You know, theology, it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's vitally important, but science is also important. We were all scientists. We were all artists. We were musicians. We were explorers. The, these are things that we were all one of. Then suddenly along the way, we started to divide up. And, and I go out here and I'm, you know, I'm a scientist, so theology is, is bullcrap. You know, I'm an explorer, so you're just an academic. I'm out there doing the real operative. I'm a hunter. I break off ex exploration. You know, I'm an I'm an artist, and never the twain shall we meet on science side. Yeah, it, it's we we've instead of embracing all of it, trying to learn the big picture, we 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 uh, it's not dichotomized, but we certainly have separated from each other. And this museum is meant to to bring everybody back together and show for hundreds of years, thousands of years, we are have always been the same. We have always been the same. We want our children. To be healthy, mm -hmm. we we want them to have food and water, shelter. We want to love. You know, there's some bad actors out there that always take advantage of of human nature, and and that's what's happening right now in our world. Like I say, we'll look back on this as the the dark ages. Uh, yeah, it'll be. Uh, yeah, it's not. It's a, you know we don't have any choice, mm -hmm. but it's kind of oh, for shame to to use Charlie Brown's. You know, or I think it was Linus said that you know, for shame. But here we are. So this is my personal attempt to spend a lifetime to give people to introduce them, reintroduce them to tolerance. And and my wife and I, Louise, we started the process uh, two years ago to create a society to donate the land, the building, the contents. And, you know, I mean, it's tens of millions of dollars uh, and give it an endowment to cover expenses for the next 40 years. So it'll always be donation. It's donation entrance now. Anybody, if, if you can afford it, great. If you can't, that's fine too. You can come in. I couldn't have come in with a $1 cover charge when I was young. So that is what this museum is. It's our gift back to, to I guess, the world. And, and hopefully, you know, because it's all private, it's all out of our own pocket. There's no government intervention. It'll never be changed of the board of directors handcuffed. So it can't be changed to to fit into whatever wind is blowing socially at, at a given time and what is socially acceptable. It'll never be politically correct, which museums should not be. They should be about history, period. It can be about politics, but they should never be politicized. Our museum here in British Columbia, Royal BC Museum, Government Museum, I, I, I mean, just an outrageous amount of operating expenses every year. They're decolonizing it, decolonizing. So they're taking out an entire swipe of history that happened. Captain Cook's replica of his boat is gone. And we're not allowed to see that because somehow we're ashamed of it. No, we should never be ashamed. It's history. Learn from it. But uh, again, you, you, you start me on my, my high horse on these kind of things. You're, 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 I'll talk your ear off. But uh, the museum is, you know, was my wife's and my way of, of uh, giving back for the next at least 40 years sure and 
yeah, no, it's no, I'll, I'll continue that process till it's done. I like that. Uh, that's the best reason I've heard for something like that. And now let's talk about Call Me Hunter. Um, you said you've been working on it since you were 10 years old. Can you walk me through that? Sure. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I knew at the age of 10, I was different. And, and I knew at the age of 10 that I would have this museum. I envisioned where I'd have to go. I had National Geographic. We could get that from the library. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to go here. I'm going to see these people. going to gather these things. I want this mammoth skeleton in my museum, mammoth tusks. I want woolly rhino. I want art from around the world, mass cultural artifacts. So that was at 10. And, and it was, you know, I mean, it was a goal, but also a little bit of a dream. At the same time, I knew that ultimately in my life, I would be a novelist. And I was reading voraciously at that time. I started my first novel at that age. I, I wrote by then we had a house. It was a little brick bungalow that uh, every dinner conversation was whether we'd lose it because the mortgage dad would get laid off, couldn't pay it off. But I started my first book then. I think I wrote about 10 pages, I don't know, eight pages. And I hid it behind a brick in our planter at the house. But I realized right away that you can't just write a novel. You, you have to have well, two ways. You can get educated to do that, become an academic, and then come out of university and sit down and write the great American novel. Or you can live life first and then write. And that's what I did. I, I picked it up again in 1993. I, I penned the first page, the first lines. Uh, Zhivago is dead. I hunted him down and I killed him. I wrote those lines in 1993. That's you know, 30 years ago. And I realized even then I got into it, you know, partway into the story and I, I still hadn't lived life enough to have an interesting story to tell to me, you know, what's, what's interesting and, and not to write my novel. Uh, so I uh, continued living for another, well, 2019, October, Mozambique was my last international trip. And I determined that in 2016 because I was booked that far out. These expeditions take years to put in place to, into these wild places that I was going. And uh, I sat down a month later when I got home, November 2019, and, and picked up those lines again. Zhivago is dead. I hunted him down and I killed him. I picked him up again, that first page, and started started writing my story. And that's what it is. It's my story. I, um, COVID hit, and then Louise got ill. So, you know, I, but I had no intention of traveling anymore anyway. I've, I've been there, done that. Mm. And if you don't put an end on, on something, you'll continue to do it. In, and uh, it's a lot of fun to travel all over the world, have adventures, meet people. But uh, but I wouldn't be able to finish off the you know this lifetime the way I wanted to finish it off when I envisioned when I was ten. So yeah, it's it's been decades. The process for for this book has been a has, has taken me decades. And and uh, but again, I you know I didn't go to school. I I, uh, I, did, I mean I went to university, but my uh, creative literature professor would always give me a C no matter what I wrote. So I actually copied a, a paper from someone who they gave an A to. I, I, this actually, this is a true story. This, in high school, I did that. It was um, um, Joni Mitchell. She went to my high school. So I, I copied one of her papers that she got an A from the same teacher and handed it in. You know, Now this is probably six, seven years after Joni Mitchell was there. And uh, he gave me a C again. 
and this was the same all through university. So I, I'm not a, I, I'm not a big believer in academics. I think that uh, life teaches you as much as what many of the teachers and professor or professors can. So I you know I live life first, and and now I. I felt I was qualified to write a novel, and that, that's what I've done. That's a really interesting perspective. Um, our buddy, Jack Carr, seems like he's one of my, um, as far as novels go, he's one of my favorites. Um, him, Greg Hurwitz, is another favorite. Speaking of Greg Hurwitz, I believe uh, you guys share the same uh, uh, audiobook reader, Scott Brick. He's, he's one of the best yeah. in the business. I think so. I mean, he did the Clive Kessler books. Yeah. I. I, you know, they Simon and Schuster had a the, the new way to do audiobooks is almost like a play, like an old radio play, where where you have different people, voice people, playing the characters. Mm-hmm. And they had seven. They gave me twenty one choices for, and and I was supposed to choose seven of them. And I, I, I mean, I listened to them. And, and these characters in the book. Now I've, you know, I'm sixty five. I've lived life. I've seen life. I've seen death. You know, I, I've been there and back again and and the voices you know the characters in my book they have wisdom of ages not you know they they can't be um boy i don't want to be i don't want to denigrate anybody here but but the voices were just not they were just not right Mm. and and so i felt i needed to to read the second person perspective which is never done in novels there's Shivago is dead. I hunted him down. I killed him. That second-person perspective, telling somebody else, and so I felt I had to read all those sections. And my first and only choice, I said, "Look, I don't want any of these twenty-one people. I want Scott Brick." Mm. And and there's a reason I wanted him because I feel and and you know Jack, the fellow he uses is wonderful. I don't think uh, it's Scott. It's someone else. And you know, great, you know, the best of the best. Uh, but I, Scott, I don't know. I'm, I'm old school i like i like his he's he's uh i mean anyone that did clive cussler is pretty cool in my books so uh, yeah, yeah i i i said no not the seven i want scott brick and and simon Schuster said absolutely and sure. yeah i haven't heard it yet but i'm looking forward to hearing well it. he did he's done so greg hurwitz writes the nowhere man series um or orphan x series however you want to refer to it um that's one that's really good he he did a bunch of baldacci's books michael Crichton. he did tom clancy books um he did uh, a lot of stuff yeah so he's great well look i'm looking forward to, to reading this i just bought it on amazon now and you can buy it too on amazon um the official release date is the 17th of october but it's available for pre-order now um this will come out monday next week so it'll be the day prior to, to release um, so go out there and buy the book. It looks like it's going to be really interesting. Um, I can't wait. I, I listen to everything, so I'll be, I'll get it on audible and listen to Scott's voice for a while. Yeah. Yeah. I, I was going to say, how can you not have a advanced reader copy sent to you? And it's, uh, but yeah, audiobooks. you know, they, they, there's, they've surpassed hard, co- mm-hmm. hardcover book sales now. I mean, that's, we spend so much time in, in, worlds where audiobooks are the only thing we can do we can multitask and listen to a story mm-hmm. so yeah audiobooks are are definitely on the rise and and especially people that live our lifestyle you know we we have lots of time where you're traveling doing whatever sitting on stand you can yeah you, know, you can listen to a book mm-hmm. uh, as opposed to reading because we we do need to multitask nowadays to accomplish just getting through each day that uh, and our responsibilities 
Yeah, I like it though. I mean, I, I enjoy reading as well from books, but this is this this has definitely been one of those technologies that's been a value add. I think for for my ability to take in more in, in more stuff, especially serialized things like a, a you know Jack's got what six books now. Greg's on his tenth, I think, in that series uh, that'll be out in February. So I really enjoy that, um, and I really enjoyed this conversation. You're a fascinating person. I like the way that you've lived your life very intentionally. Uh, it's something that I try to do myself. And then, you know, uh, all, all the, it, it seems like <clears throat> a lot of your focus tends to, uh, you know, try to grab up as much information as you can and put it out to people so they can make their lives better, which I appreciate as well. So I thank you for coming today. Everybody go check out the book, Call Me Hunter. Um, it, it's sure to be great. And uh, again, thank you for coming today. I appreciate it. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Thanks Thanks for having me on. Yes, sir. And thank you all for listening. This has been Citizen. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.